Christmas morning, 10 o'clock. Seriously, you come to church on Christmas? It's really for those of you who would like to. You know, it is so, it is so laid back. I mean, people come in all kinds of attire and, and uh, even us, you know. I, I, one year I forgot to comb my hair even. Okay, be sure to tip your waitresses. Uh, it's very casual. It's very informal. It's, it's not even very long. It's just a great way to punctuate that time, a day, you know, with, a, with just a minute. Just a, a few minutes of time with some of the family. A couple hundred people will come. It's real nice. So come if you like to do that. And also on that, traditionally we give out all of these poinsettias. They all go away here. They all go away. So you might want to just come for that. I don't know. But they'll be going. A couple of weeks from today, January 5th, I'm going to be starting a couple things in the evening. I'm going to start a four-week series Sunday evenings on the study of the book of Jonah. So uh, I thought the book of, uh, what did we do last time? Philippians. Philippians. Yeah, that went pretty well, and uh, it was good. So we're going to do another one of those four-week studies on Sunday nights, four Sunday nights of January on the book of Jonah. It's uh, it'd be uh, you know a little more in-depth teaching. Uh, but also on that morning, I'm going to start a series of messages for you all called Living Your Best Life. And striking me, you know, the Bible gives us guidelines for how to live the best version of our life. You know, I mean, we all get this one life, right? We all get this one life. And we can live it in different ways. And we can live it toward the best end or the not-so-good end. And uh, the Bible gives us real clear instructions, wonderful invitations into how to live the best version of your life. And it's something that you can start at any point in your life, as we're going to see in the scriptures. It's never too late to start living the best version of your life. It's never too early to begin living it. So we're going to start that also. So that's a little news of, of what is to come. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When, God, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and she gave him the name Jesus. Some of you are already saying, hey, wait a minute, that's the same passage you read and taught from last Sunday. You're right, because catch this, there's more, much more. There's more to this. Last week we were drawn into the thought that Jesus had two names, Jesus, which in Greek is Jesus, in Hebrew is Yeshua, which is the, uh, the significance of that is that that name means that Jesus came to provide full forgiveness for all of our sins before a holy God. That's what his name means, Jesus. But that he also had another name, a second name, a middle name, a last name. Think of it however you like. But he also had a name, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means what? It means God is with us. And that shows us that not only does Jesus, Jesus come to save us 
from our sins so that someday we may enter heaven, but that he desires to indwell us now and for us to experience his dynamic presence in the here and now. This is God's plan. This is why he came. We also visited the truth that when we do authentically encounter the presence of God, then something called joy will emerge as a result. That according to Galatians chapter 5, joy is one of the essential elements of the fruit of the Spirit. And that when we experience God in the present reality and power of His Holy Spirit, then we will begin to heavily traffic in joy. We also noticed last week that uh, there are some important distinctions between the concepts of joy and happiness. That while happiness is circumstantial and externally driven, joy is abiding and it's internally driven. It begins on the inside with your relationship with God. That while happiness is often fragile and fickle, Joy is the opposite. It's durable. It's sturdy because it's built on God. It's not built on what's happening. That while happiness is dependent on our ability to engineer our own favorable circumstances for ourselves, joy is dependent upon God's ability to remain sovereign in any and every circumstance. And it is the nature of God to be sovereign. He can't not be sovereign. (laughs) Happiness is a positive state of mind derived from the pleasure of of favorable circumstances. Joy is a positive state of mind built on the confident knowledge that God is in control in any and every circumstance of our lives. Yeah? What a difference. A lot of feedback this week on the power of that distinction between joy and happiness. It's joy that God promises through His Son, Jesus Christ. You will experience seasons of happiness and you're going to have seasons of distress. But joy abides joy is always there for the taking joy is always there for the having because it's built on god remember your joy remember your joy are you in a season of happiness then remember your joy don't get sucked into the happiness and forget your joy are you in a season of distress remember your joy your joy is still there the bible says there shall be weeping for a season but joy comes in the morning remember your joy Well, today I'd like to develop one more important aspect of the name Emmanuel, which I I hope will be a blessing to you and help you in your walk with God. I'd like to talk with you about something we could call the Emmanuel experience. At the center of the gospel is the message that God is among us, yeah? That's the center of the gospel, is that God came, that God's among us. But not just to stand next to us, but if you keep reading the whole, the whole witness of Scripture, God didn't come just to stand next to us, but to invade us, to indwell us, to overtake us, to get on the inside. And the significance of the name Emmanuel is essential for understanding even what the gospel means. We have made it so much about salvation in terms of forgiveness from our sins, which is a critical element how we have neglected his second name, Emmanuel, God with us, God in us. It's true that Jesus came to save us from our sins. I'm happy about that. Anybody else happy about that today, or is it just me? Because I got a list. All right. But it's also true, it's equally true, that Jesus came to indwell us, to overpower us, and indwell us in the here and now. The Bible says clearly that God wants to come and indwell us and 
and to express himself through us. That the measure of God that the world will see is going to come through you. I know. God wants to be a clear voice inside of us to guide us, a sustaining presence to help us. God wants, I believe, for our lives to be characterized by Him and His values and His heart for the world and what God wants, we want. And this is the very thing, this experience of the presence of God that I just want to call the Emmanuel experience. Interested? Are you interested? Thank you. Just be happy it's not snow. So how do I get there? How do I begin to have this Emmanuel experience? If the gospel is about being saved for heaven and authentically experience the presence of God right here and now, how do I do that? Well, as you can imagine, the answer is a long one. could be a long one. But the short answer is simply this, and it will mean more to you than others. The short answer is practice the disciplines. Practice the disciplines. And that means something to some of you. And maybe, what are you talking about? Practicing the disciplines. Believers around the world have for centuries been responding to the witness of Scripture and the move of the Holy Spirit and trying to answer this question. And in the process, have developed a series of practices called the spiritual disciplines. They include things like prayer and fasting and worship and confession and study and silence and solitude and simplicity. And the list of a dozen or more practices that you'd call spiritual disciplines, this is your path. This is your methodology to experience the presence of God. Um, the best book I can re- recommend to you on the subject of spiritual disciplines, and it's a great place to begin because it starts from nothing, is a book called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. This book changed my life 30 years ago. But before you go off and rush off and buy that book thinking it will finally bring you close to God, you need to answer two critical questions. There are two critical questions that you need to answer before you will ever have the Emmanuel experience. Say, what are the two questions, Tom? Come on. Say, oh, wise one, what are the two questions? Come on, give give me something here. This place is really tight today. Come on. You have studied so hard and so long. Two questions. Number one. Do you believe that God wants you to experience his presence in amazing ways? Or do you really believe that such things are reserved for a select few? That's your first question. Do you really believe that the God of the universe wants to come to your house? Or do you believe, no, I believe there's a God of the universe and he comes to some, but, you know, I'm kind of the rank and file and probably not going to happen in my world. This is the first critical question. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Because whether you believe it or not, it doesn't change the fact of whether or not it's true. A thing is either true or it's not true, right? But whether you believe it makes a difference to your world. I mean... 
whether or not you believe an airplane can fly doesn't change the fact that they fly, right? I don't believe that. But if you choose to believe it, you can save a lot of time and travel, can't you? It's the same with this stuff. Whether or not you choose to believe the witness of Scripture does not change whether or not it's true. It's either true or it's not true. But whether you choose to believe it determines what happens next in your house. So do you believe that God wants you to experience his presence in amazing way, in amazing ways? I mean, are you buying this? Or do you say, you know, there's a bit of that, but I think that's kind of reserved for the special people. That's question one. Because you can practice those disciplines all day long, and if you don't believe this, it's just going to be religious emptiness. Don't do it. Question two. Ask me what it is. Good. That's better. Question two is, do you believe that the way into God's presence has been fully paid by Jesus Christ? Or do you really believe that there is still more for you to do in order to be worthy to experience God? Do you believe that the way into God's presence, first, is for you, intended for you, and second, your, your, the price of admission has been fully paid? Or do you think that, yeah, you call on the name of Jesus, but uh, there's a bunch of other stuff i got to do to really get that? These are the two critical questions for you to ask yourself. And unlayer your answer. Because some of you can come back with the right answer. But really? Is that, are you just coming, coming back with the right answer? There's a lot of social pressure in any church, the pressure to fit in. I don't like that. But it's true. It's just a sociological phenomenon. There's a lot of pressure to fit in. So be careful you're not coming back with the right answer because it's the right answer. I want you to ask yourself deeply, do you believe the answer you're giving? That that experience is for you and that it's fully paid by Jesus. I want you to think for a moment of your approach into the presence of God as something like an on-ramp to the freeway. Okay, you know, you're, you're traveling around the surface roads going under the overpasses and you're seeing man cars are really moving up there i'm going up i'm going i want you to think of your entrance into the presence of god like approaching the on-ramp to the freeway or expressway or whatever you were taught to call it when you were short some of you are still short i think uh there are a couple of questions i'd like you to entertain in this scenario the first question is this, is this truly a freeway or is it a toll road? Is it really a freeway or is it a toll road? Karen and I recently went on a family vacation and we had the enjoyment of several hundred miles on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. I was surprised at how much that cost. 
You want how much? Some of you truck drivers face this all the time, and you've got more axles. You want how much? I... I wondered what they did with all that money because thousands of cars are doing this all right now. They're picking money. I don't wonder what they do with all this money. I entertained the thought as I was driving along of asking the person at the booth, what is it that you get? Do you, is it possible that anybody could use some of it to patch some of the enormous potholes that we've been dodging for the last 300 miles? But my grandson's in the back seat. Not a good example. He has enough to deal with by being my grandson without adding to it on purpose. So. Of course, we have our own version of this thing that we so creatively call the Ohio Turnpike. So we can't really hold this against our brothers and sisters to the east. But, but the vast majority, the vast majority of the super roads in Ohio require no toll, do they? You just drive right up. So they must be free. That's not really true, is it? They're not free. Not a single one of those ramps or roads are free. They're just already paid for. The billions and billions of dollars have been collected over the years in something called taxes. And they're collected from people pretty pretty much equally if you drive the roads every day, if you drive them once in a while, or if you've never been on one. You've still contributed. And so while they may not be free, they're already paid for. The cost of their construction and maintenance is covered. Access to the presence of God isn't free. It's just fully paid for. Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, voluntarily died a perfect death, experienced a powerful resurrection and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits enthroned in majesty and intercedes for my sins and for your sins and for the sins of the world. Jesus paid it. He paid the full price. But not only into our entrance into heaven later, but into the dynamic experience of the presence of God now. Hebrews chapter 10 says this. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. The Bible invites us to have extreme confidence in our entrance into the presence of God for one and only one reason. What is it? The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus Christ. Exactly. The Bible says that the blood of Jesus was shed for us once and for all, that it's a finished work. The Bible also says that the blood of Jesus continually speaks on our behalf as the ongoing payment for our entrance into the Emmanuel experience. It's not free. It's just completely, totally paid for. Do you believe that? Then why are you trying so hard to add to it? Imagine the traffic jam you would cause if every time you started up a ramp on 270, you stopped and waited and looked for somebody to pay. Imagine the mess that you would create if you could not accept the fact that it had already been paid for. And I'm wondering what a log jam occurs in the free flow of the Holy Spirit in our church today because so many will not fully accept the fact that the price has been fully paid 
They spend their lives looking for someone else to pay. They can't believe it. And so they fail to go up the ramp. I have a fantasy that I entertain. The fantasy is based on Acts chapter 2 of a church that is in love with God in such a way that the Holy Spirit most freely and people freely love one another. It's only born by the Holy Spirit. You can't engineer it. What could the church, even this church, become if every one of us dared to follow our heart's desire into the nearness of God? So your way into the presence of God has been fully paid. There's no, uh, no toll to pay other than to humbly receive this payment for yourself. But go up the ramp. Don't spend your life on the surface roads of faith wondering what it's like up there on the freeway. Which brings us to the second thing I'd like you to think about in the freeway scenario. And the answer is, are you really qualified to drive up there? You know, on driver's ed, they start you out in the parking lot, I hope. Then they move you on to safer streets and then busier streets. And ultimately, I assume they still do this. They ultimately put you on 270, right? Keep increasing the speed as it goes along. You're really not qualified to go up there in the beginning. Don't just throw you the keys and now you're 16. Go knock yourself out. But it's gradual. It's incremental. And I'm asking you, are you to the place where you understand that it is God's desire for you to drive up there? Do you believe that? So many people seem to think that the Emmanuel experience, God with us and the experience of the presence of God is meant for some but not for all. They know of or learn of people who claim to have heard from God. Who say they experience His presence with some regularity. And they spend their lives wondering what that would be like. One of the traps of the devil he's so good at One of the traps of the devil in this regard is to persuade you that such a thing is only for special people. You know, pastors and priests and people who are trained professionals in this regard. And that error is called empty religion, and it will suck the life out of your walk with Christ. There is a false message that openly or sometimes subtly plays in your mind that says that God only calls certain people to enjoy the melody of his voice the splendors of his presence and he calls them priests or he calls them pastors and this is a lie it does not square with the bible i mean if you want to follow the teaching of men go ahead but that's called religion i can't promise you it gets to heaven i cannot promise you that the teaching of men will take you to heaven i can promise you that the teaching of the word of god will get you to heaven And what I just described to you, that pastors and priests and prophets and such have some kind of special access to God, does not square with the teaching of Scripture. You do not need a priest. You do not need someone to stand between you as an intermediary, someone to give you God. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at the next part of it. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's draw near to God with a sincere heart and a full assurance of faith. Since we already have a great priest over the house of God, and if you keep reading Hebrews, you discover that the great priest is Jesus. I said Jesus. Somebody say Jesus. Jesus. 
Thank you. Last. Oh, great. Jesus is the priest. He's the high priest. The Bible says in Hebrews that Jesus is the priest in the order of Melchizedek, which means that he is a priest directly from God. Melchizedek was a pre-law priest in the book of Genesis. Jesus is our high priest. Why would you want another one? Why would you expect anybody else to do a better job of serving you into the presence of God other than the Son of God, Jesus, who gave his life to do this for you? That's what this means. The Bible says that none of us need an earthly priest to serve as an intermediary for our experience of God. This is because Jesus Christ is our priest. He's the one who serves us, takes us into God's presence. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Did you hear it? Do you believe it? I don't ever, 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 ever want to be accused of judging some other part of the body of Christ. I think if you know me, you know that I believe that the church in the world is a beautiful thing in all of its diversity. I have no judgment against any other part of the church. It is a full-time job for me to think about us. So when I say that you do not need a priest... I am not purposely criticizing any part of the church that may call it shepherds priests. I'm not. It doesn't really matter whether you call them priest, pastor, prophet, whatever. If you depend on that person to serve up God to you, you have an unhealthy relationship. Because you don't need us. You don't need us to stand between you and God. What I am concerned about is that anyone would think they need a priest or a pastor or a prophet or anyone else to gain access into the authentic experience of God in their lives. You don't need us, and there's great danger in thinking that you do. Because if you, if you think that you do, you will learn to rely on us in an unhealthy way, and you may fall into the trap of trying to live vicariously through us. That as we go to God and we come and tell you how great He is and how wonderful He is, You may say, that's enough for me to hear it from someone else. It's not enough. There's so much more for you. And if you do that, you are ultimately living outside of the clear teaching of the New Testament. So the question is, what do we need you for, Tom, right? It's a good question. What do we need you for, Tom? My benefit to you is not as an intermediary to God but mainly as a tour guide. While you do not need me to go and see God, and while you are not permitted to live vicariously through my experiences, I may just be of some definite help to you in knowing the way in. Why? Because... By God's calling, your faithfulness, your blessing, I have been privileged to do this full-time for 35 years. Now you can reap the benefit of that. I can't give you God. You can go and get God, but I can help you. And that's all a pastor or a priest or a prophet or anyone can do for you. They can just serve as the tour guide, as one who knows the way. Does that make sense? Okay. Because I think there's a big difference 
between someone being special or there being a specialist. Here's another one of those word distinctions. I think sometimes we make pastors and prophets and priests and stuff out as though they are special people. We are not. I have gone to great lengths to tell you that my sins are the same as yours. Have you heard that message? Sometimes to the point that Karen will say to me, hey, uh, I think we're getting it. I think they get it. Uh, you know, you can, you can back off on that a little now. So we're not special, but we're specialists. We've been privileged to give our lives to this so that we can help you get what we have found. Some of you know about this from your own professions. If you are an attorney, you're not special, but you're specialist. If you speed, you're going to get a ticket, right? But as a specialist, you may know more about the law than the rest of us so that you can help us with our speeding tickets. (laughs) If you are a physician, you're a specialist. You're not special. Being a physician does not... Assume that you have some special access to health if you mistreat your body or if you subject yourself to certain conditions, you're going to become diseased like the rest of us. But as a specialist, you have information. You have access to information and knowledge and wisdom that can help yourself, can help us. This is what a pastor is. This is what a priest is. It's someone who has access because you have privileged us to live our lives for this, to be able to help you. That's all I need. So, the Emmanuel experience just really begins with God. He's come for you. He's come for you now. He's come. Emmanuel has come. That's the clear and consistent teaching of the Bible. So now the ball is in your court, isn't it? What will you do? Will you choose to have faith and believe it? That's your next move. To willfully choose to have faith and believe it. The Bible says in Hebrews 11:6, Without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. You've got to believe. You have to make the willful decision to believe. You look at the evidence. Choose to believe. You made that decision about a car. If I get in the car, I can safely get from here to there. Some of you have made that decision about airplanes. Well, I don't understand it, but I can do it. I have looked at the data. I am choosing to believe. Look at the data. Look at the data. Either I'm telling the truth or I'm telling a lie. Right? Some of you have been around long enough to figure out the difference. Either I'm telling you the truth that God can be found, that God can be discovered, that God can be enjoyed in this life, or I'm not. I'm telling a lie just to support myself. I think I have a lot easier ways to support myself than this gig. So you have to decide. The Bible is either telling the truth or it's telling a lie. Read it for yourself. Decide if it's true or decide if it's a lie. But if you decide that it's true, then you're struck with, now am I going to put my faith in it? Now am I going to take the next step? Now am I going to put my faith in it? Start here. It begins with these two questions. Do you believe that God wants you to experience him? And do you believe the way it's fully paid for in Jesus' name? Father, we bow before you today in this Christmas season. And uh, we rejoice in you and who you are and what you have, uh, what you're inviting us into salvation that all of our lives would be our sins would be covered yesterday today and tomorrow lord we don't boast in our sin we're not happy about it but we see it and so we present it to you in the name of jesus and we ask you to cover it and fill us also with your presence so that we won't repeat it 
Father, how will we ever be different unless you come and indwell us by your presence, unless we get this next part of who you are? How will we not just keep coming back with the same sin again and again and again and again from now to eternity unless you come and indwell us, Lord? So come, Father, we pray in these moments that we have together as a fellowship that we set aside just to respond to you. Different people here with different things in their minds, different things going on in their lives, separate, unique responses from each person, and we present them to you as one voice, Father. We pray that you'll pour out your Spirit on those who receive prayer today. Those who decide that today is a good day to receive prayer. May the power of the Lord just be poured out on those who come to pray for others and those who come to respond to that opportunity. Father, I just pray for every person here, whatever it is they're struggling with, whatever it is they're having difficulty with, may the Spirit of God just come and boldly move into into their lives. Thank you, O Lord, for this season. We just pray, Father, that you'll get in the center of our hearts, that you'll get in the center of our hearts. Jesus, Emmanuel, will come and dwell in us, in this church, and in each of us individually. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.